In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is good to be with you here this morning. My family and I have been worshiping here for uh, three years now, but it is good to be able to reflect on this feast and on these lessons with you this morning. Uh, And I want to thank Dean Kimbrough. I thanked him this morning uh, for his invitation here to preach and was reminded of the fact uh, that the last time I preached here at Christ Church on a Sunday morning was uh, Trinity Sunday in 2019. And uh, as I said this morning at the 8.30, I don't know if this was an intentional invitation to come back on Trinity Sunday, but I do expect a third invitation sometime in the future to complete the trilogy since that seems appropriate. It won't be surprising to any of you to know that one of the things I love about our tradition is the Book of Common Prayer, specifically its capacity to pass on a language of prayer and to shape an ongoing devotional life. It's, it's something that I have needed in my life uh, that has become a center of my life and an empowering and a calming force. And I hope that many of you have found it to be the same. One of the prayers that is often repeated in the prayer book is known as the Gloria Patri or the Glory Be or the Minor Doxology. And uh, you've most likely encountered it in the daily office where it follows uh, the Invitatory and the Psalm uh, and many of the Canticles. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Or, as right one has it, world without end. Amen. I confess to you I have a a preference for the right one language there. World without end. The frequency of this prayer forces us, at least in our piety, to consider the Trinity. This is also the case with many of our traditional colics, which the prayers that are appointed for Sundays and feasts and other occasions, uh, with many of them ending with an invocation of all three persons of the Trinity. Today's collect is an example. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship. That is the faith and worship of the Trinity. And bring us at last to see You in Your one eternal glory. O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign one God forever and ever. Amen. In other words, our tradition will not allow us to avoid the Trinity, even if we would like to. Of course, we really can't avoid the Trinity anyway, and we shouldn't try to avoid it because contra the caricature of Trinity Sunday as being about dense and obscure theology and funny words, the Trinity is about knowing God. Knowing God as Trinity is essential to the Christian life and has real and important impacts on our lives and our faith. We can't avoid the Trinity because each of us bears the impression of the triune God in ourselves. Creation as well bears the Trinitarian mark of its Creator just as clay bears the evidence of the potter who forms it. The Father who speaks the word of creation and breathes the Spirit who hovers over the waters is written in Genesis. 
leaves the evidence in all of life and in the renewal of life. No surprise then that we see the creation itself represented in the course of the renewal affected by Christ's ministry as He begins His public work with His baptism, where again we hear, to paraphrase the great Bishop Lancelot Andrews, the Father in the voice, this is My Son. The Son in the water and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. The Trinity in action, renewing that which the Trinity has made. Now, creation is a topic beyond the scope of this sermon. I may hear a few sighs of relief. Uh, God is an even bigger focus. So I want to look at three specific points. Maybe even larger sighs of relief. The focal points are these. The love of God, the holiness of God, and the incomprehensibility of God. All three of these are good news. And all three are conveyed in the story of God, the story of God in history, the story of God in each of our lives. That is the revelation of who God is in history, the story of salvation found in the Holy Scriptures, the story of salvation that each of us experience and take part in, which might also be thought of as our place in God's unfolding story. And finally, the abundant life which is God's that we are invited and empowered to participate in through the action of all three persons of the Trinity now and in the future. Why talk about the Trinity? On the third anniversary of 9-11, then Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, spoke at Al-Azhar Al-Sharif, a university in Cairo, one of the oldest universities in the world, a center of Sunni Islam. And perhaps surprisingly, on the surface, his topic was the Trinity. Not the first doctrine one might pick to engage in potential dialogue with Muslims. And yet, it makes sense as a topic when we consider the fraught nature of the time and the attempt to address ills in global society, not least the specter of terrorism and the response of rising and increasing prejudice. For a Christian, focusing on God's identity and life and how we are implicated and share in it is a sensible place to start when addressing seemingly insurmountable problems and evils. Something we might bear listening to today. Williams, in writing about the Trinity, talks about it in terms of God being the name of a kind of life, which he says is eternal and self-sufficient life, always active, needing nothing. And that life is lived eternally in three ways which are made known to us in the history of God's revelation to the Hebrew people and in the life of Jesus. There is, he says a source of life, an expression of life, and a sharing of life. Now wanting us to participate in this life, the Father sends the Word, the Son, to renew and to show us the way, breathes the Spirit into us so that we can be more like the Son and in turn carry out the ongoing mission of the body of Christ to all people and to the whole of creation. 
The Trinity matters because the Trinity simply is the way we experience the work of God in our lives individually and the work of God in the world. Our individual awareness of God as Trinity begins with our encounter with Jesus and the love of God. A passage from Romans identifies this as Paul writes, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a doctrine, the Trinity was reasoned out of the early church's efforts to make sense of Jesus. The early Christians looked at Jesus and couldn't help but declare with Thomas, My Lord and my God. This experience of the Trinity is captured by Paul. And the Apostle makes clear that in Christ, we have been reconciled with God. Where once there was the fear of enmity, of judgment, of separation, of condemnation, of alienation from others, now there is peace. Now there is peace. Peace with God and the possibility of peace with other people. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Throughout the New Testament is the declaration that in Jesus, God is making unilateral peace with humanity. Unilateral because God doesn't wait around on us to make it possible. God declares it. God makes it possible. God enacts it. Why would God act in this way? It's not... It's not certain that we could expect some sort of generic deity to act in this way. Certainly there are plenty of people who believe in a clockmaker God who sets things to work and then departs. Why would we expect God to act in this way? Proverbs gives gives us some direction as we hear the voice of Lady Wisdom, traditionally identified with the pre-incarnate Word. So just for the moment... um, blank out of your mind those parts that talked about wisdom being created we're gonna we're not gonna talk about that but traditionally associated with the pre-incarnate word the uncreated second person of the trinity we hear the voice of lady wisdom uh, and i appreciate robert alter's translation where wisdom says i was by god by him by god an intimate I was His delight day after day, playing before Him at all times, playing in the world, His earth. And my delight was humankind. The wonder of God's love is that we no longer have to fear a nameless divine judge meeting out capricious punishments. We know the judge, and He is the same person who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The divine wisdom, the divine word who delights in humanity. Now, being transformed into the likeness of Christ is not only to be forgiven, but to be agents of forgiveness. Not only to love our neighbors, not only to love our neighbors as ourselves, but also to delight in humanity. Not only to give thanks for and to steward creation, but to delight in and protect it. The importance of this is that forgiveness, which is how God meets us, means freedom. A freedom that the worst things that have happened to us or that have been done by us are only part of our story and do not ultimately define us. We 
are part of God's story being defined by the love of God in Christ which leads us to desire a new life, being led by the Spirit to repentance. It also means sharing that hope with others. It can give us strength in the hard times and it gives us people to help us to stand with us when we can't stand on our own. And finally, as part of the community of the forgiven, the baptized, the body of Christ, we are called to show the world a different way of being. This work of forgiveness leads us squarely into the question of God's holiness. We tend to think of judgment as an outgrowth of holiness, but not so much mercy. But for God, judgment and mercy are the same. This is part of God's perfection and simplicity. The distance between God's being and ours is such that what seems to us completely antithetical and opposing values are the same for God. We come to know the life of God after experiencing the holiness of God. We see this played out in the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are frightened by the revelation of Christ's true nature. But the story is there as well, as Luke tells us, as Jesus is discussing His exodus, the work of freeing all people from bondage to sin that He was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. We see here the holiness and the love of God intertwined, inseparable, recounted in Scripture. The persons of the Trinity all in action. The consequence of experiencing God's love and forgiveness and encountering God's holiness is, I believe, an implanted passion to love what God loves, to see forgiveness proclaimed and justice and mercy taken up in the halls of government and the streets of our towns and cities as well as in the sanctuary. In order for this to happen, in order for this to happen, we have to get out of the way. And that might seem counterintuitive. Often we hear about how we have to get out and do the work. And, and I believe we do have to work, but before we can do the work, we have to get out of the way. We can be empowered by the truth of God's love for us, but we can be motivated also by this truth. Our story is not the whole story. The whole story is God's story. God is writing this narrative of which we already know the end. As theologian Catherine Sondriger writes, we sinners must be moved gently but firmly out of the living center of the Christian religion. Only God stands there. The problem with putting our individual stories at the center alone is that it can lead to an inability to act how can we do so much? How can we conquer so great a foe? How can we deal with so many trials and tribulations? But when we put God at the center and our story as a part of God's story, well then we recognize that the headline is not our unworthiness, our sinfulness, but God's justice and forgiveness. Not our limitations or fears, but God's power and love. Empowered by this movement, we can work for the justice and mercy to which God calls all human endeavors and societies, not through our power, not dependent upon what we are innately capable of, but through the Spirit 
who is continually at work. Those of you who have delved into the historic documents of the prayer book, perhaps during a sermon or two, may have come across the creed attributed to St. Athanasius, which has the line, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. And some have then added the joking line, the whole thing incomprehensible. Well, I want to tell you today that this is actually good news. It is good news that it is not only unnecessary to comprehend God, it is impossible. Now in this instance, comprehend means not only having knowledge of, but complete understanding of, grasping, surrounding, encompassing. If we could completely understand God, if we could surround God, if we could encompass God with our minds, well then whatever we thought to be God would be proven to be something less than God. So here we have to fall back on God's nature again as Trinity and the incarnation of God in Christ. John tells us elsewhere in his Gospel, no one has ever seen the Father. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made Him known. We may not comprehend or fully understand God, but we know the character of God in the person of Jesus Christ because this is the way that God has chosen to be present with us. We learn this truth through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. One aspect of God's incomprehensibility that we have to live with as the church today is God's unpredictability. Someone has said that one way to recognize the work of God, starting with Scripture and then looking through history, is to see what events could never have been predicted, but which in hindsight seem obvious. Could have been no other way. This is one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit continues to guide the church and Christians into greater and deeper and more faithful understandings of the apostolic faith. Jesus tells His disciples in today's Gospel, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Those words are as true today to us as they were for the disciples. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify Me because He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. We know the shape of the work of the Spirit from this, but not the details. We know that the Spirit will glorify Christ, but it may be in ways that are completely unexpected before the fact. Only in hindsight, with the benefit of the shared perspective of the whole body, can we come to understand what it means to follow what Sondriger names, or who Sondriger names, the, revela the revolution who is God. The revolution who is God. So Trinity Sunday is a day for us to move ourselves out of the center to recognize the identity of God as the source of life then and now, to ex the experience of God's life in Jesus, whom we know from the testimony of the Scriptures and the church through the ages, and in our own lives as we grow in faithfulness and become more and more like Him, the recognition of the Holy Spirit who has guided and will continue to guide the church and animate the process of renewal of creation in which we are called to participate and to which we are to bear witness. The Trinity names 
the God who is active in our lives, who Jesus taught us to call not just Lord, but Father, the source of our life and being, the one who saves us through the Son, Jesus Christ, and shows us how to live more fully and faithfully through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to then proclaim the word to others, to share that hope in the world and to gather up the praise of all creation, which likewise bears the triune marks of our Creator. God, who gives us the gift of time, gives us also the gift of the divine eternity so that we can know that God is with us now and always, and we will be with God, Father of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit, world without end. Amen.